The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. Um, it's exciting. This uh, move here to Wheeling has been about two years in the making. And, uh, you know, we were talking about for so long that at some point it really did begin to almost feel like it was like a myth, you know. It's this land flowing with milk and honey and this promised land that we're going to get to one day. The day has finally arrived, and uh, I'm so appreciative of NPC and their welcoming us into their building, and uh, even for the welcome for Pastor Kang and inviting us here. And so uh, we're excited about what the future holds for our two churches coming under this uh, one roof and uh, just so thankful to God. What a joy it is to celebrate in this new place. Um, I feel like it's so comfortable in the sanctuary. You're more likely to fall asleep during the message or something. I'm a little worried about it, so I think we may have to figure out something to jolt you once in a while or, or something like that. Um, as I was preparing for this first worship service here in Wheeling, um, for some reason, this encounter of God at the burning bush with Moses uh, kept coming to me, this theme of God's presence. And so in our first service here in this new uh, building, I thought that I would talk about that, that encounter of Moses at the burning bush. Um, the story of Moses takes place in the days when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, as most of you in this room know. The Egyptians began to watch the Israelites multiplying way faster than they were until they became actually a mighty nation living right there in their midst. And so they felt threatened by it. And so Pharaoh one day finally orders that every Jewish boy that is born to a Jewish mother be killed by being thrown into the Nile River to be drowned. But Moses' mother hid Moses after he was born for three months. And when she realized that she couldn't keep the secret anymore, she took a great step of faith and wove this basket and put her three-month-old infant into that basket and floated her baby down the Nile River. That basket found its way by God's sovereign hand into Pharaoh's own daughter who found this Hebrew child and would go on to raise him as her own son. And so even though Moses was a Hebrew, he grew up in the court of Pharaoh as a prince of Egypt. And when Moses finally reached 40, uh, he, it's clear that he knew he was a Jew, even though he grew up as Egyptian royalty. You can just sort of imagine what kind of tug of war was going on in his life, struggling with identity issues. And he sees this Egyptian man beating up on a Jewish man. And he can't just stand by as a bystander and watch this event unfold. And so he takes matters into his own hand and he ends up killing this Egyptian and burying the body to hide his crime. And he thinks he's basically gotten away with murder. 
Until the very next day, he sees two Jewish men fighting with one another. And he tries to break up this fight and saying, why are you two fighting with each other? You guys are fellow Jews. You shouldn't be fighting like this. And they stop and one of them turns and I suspect with a very snarky tone says to Moses, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed that Egyptian? Moses realizes that his crime was not a secret. And it wouldn't be long before that murder would be public information. And so fearing for his life, Moses ran for his life into the Midian desert. And for the next 40 years, Moses would live in that desert, tending sheep as a lowly shepherd. And at the ripe old age of 80, God appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 to 8, we find these words. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But you see, the Moses that stood before God that day was not the same Moses that came out of Egypt 40 years earlier. Those days as a prince of Egypt were long gone. And all that was left was this broken 80-year-old man tending sheep in the middle of a desert. And if ever there was an uninspiring story about God calling someone to his service, this story has to be it. Because Moses ends up responding. I think I'm going to need you guys to advance it there. Yeah, Moses ends up responding in verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? In other words, what Moses says to God in reply to his call to serve him is, You've got the wrong guy. Who am I? I'm a nobody. I can't do what you want me to do. You know, it's interesting that normally if somebody talks to you like this, there's a very natural human instinct to say something like, oh, don't say that. You can do it. I'm sure you'll do just fine, right? That's, that's our gut level reaction when somebody sort of talks about themselves in that kind of denigrating way. But what's interesting is that God makes no effort to correct Moses about his own self-assessment. He doesn't say, you're a good guy, Moses. You, you, you're, why do you think I picked you? He doesn't do any of that to help him feel better about his own inadequacy. Instead, what God replies is, and God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship on this mountain. That burning bush happened on Mount Sinai. In other words, what God was saying to Moses was, you're right, Moses. You're pretty inadequate. You're only a hollow shell of the man you once were. 
that prince of Egypt who stood so tall and was so courageous, you would even murder a man to protect your people. But this is what God says. But I will be with you. And if my presence is with you, that's all that matters. This is so different than the psychology of our day when we see someone struggling with identity issues or insecurity issues or feelings of inadequacy. We always try to puff them up, don't we? It's all about telling them, believe in yourself. You can do it. But the Bible says actually something rather different. It says you are weak. You are inadequate. But I am strong. And if I am with you, that's all you really need to know. Everything else will work its way through for you. Well, apparently that wasn't good enough for Moses. And so in verse 13, Moses says to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what should I tell them? You see, you've got to understand what's happening here. Is Moses' first objection to God was, Well, who am I to go on behalf of you? And God responds, don't worry, I am with you. And so then Moses basically says, yeah, but who are you? And God then gives this famous reply in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Of all of the names that are used of God in the Bible, This name that God gives to Moses at the burning bush among the Jews is considered the most sacred. In fact, it's so sacred that the Jews never say the name out loud. In fact, whenever this name occurs in the Old Testament, they don't even write that name, but they substitute it with another more generic name for the Lord. And so whenever this substitution takes place in the Bible, particularly in our English translations like the NIV, so that you know that it's the name that was given to Moses at the burning bush, they actually will write it in all capital letters as the Lord so that you realize it's not actually Adonai that is being used, but this new name. Now the problem is this, is that if the Jews never spoke this name, Not only that, but in Hebrew writing, you don't actually, um, actually, we're not, yeah, we're not ready for that slide yet, but it's okay, you can leave it on that, that's fine. Um, We we don't know how the name is actually pronounced because in Hebrew writing, they don't actually write the vowels out there. They don't even include the vowels. And so without knowing the vowels, we don't know how to say it, and so in the King James Version, They took their best shot at it, and now we know that they misunderstood Hebrew vowels, and they called this name Jehovah, Jehovah. Well, modern scholars today tell us that probably the best way, the best guess at pronouncing the name that was given at this burning bush was the name Yahweh, Yahweh. What's interesting is that word Yahweh is very similar to the Hebrew verb To be. It also could be translated in this passage as I am. Now, one of the things that we know is that whenever God reveals a new name to his people, it often is for the purpose of telling them something new about his character, about who he is, 
what he is like, and what he is going to do on our behalf. And so now when he gives this name, I am, to Moses, what God is saying is more than just I am, meaning I exist. But there's a strong argument to say a better way to translate it is I am present. I am present. I am here. Or in other words to say, I am here among you, with you. In other words, what God seems to be saying to Moses is this. My name is the God who is present with you. I will be with you to help you and deliver you. Well, you would think that by now Moses would get the message and he would be packing his bags and heading off to Egypt. But like I said, this is one of the most uninspiring testimonies of a calling of a man of God you can find in the Bible. And so in Exodus 4 verse 1, Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? In other words, he's saying, I don't think they're going to believe what I have to say. And what am I supposed to do then? And God says, well, this is what I'll do for you. I'll provide a series of miracles, miraculous signs that will prove to others that God has sent you to them. And so he first tells Moses to take his staff and throw it on the ground, and it turns into a snake. And sure enough, Moses recoils. It says he actually ran away because he was terrified. And God commanded him, pick up the snake. And Moses grabs it by the tail and it turns back into his staff. And then he says, stick your hand into your cloak and take it out. And when he does so, we're told that his hand became leprous like snow. And then he said, stick it back in and take it out again. And when he did, it was fully restored to normal. And he, then God says this, listen, if they don't listen to these three signs, I'll perform one more sign through you. So take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. And as you pour it on the ground, that water will become blood in the eyes of the Egyptians. What we have to understand is that these were not three random signs. They were very specific messages to the Egyptians. You see, the Egyptian rulers wore cobras on their headdress. Uh, If we could, yeah. They wore cobras on their headdress as a symbol of power. The snake to the Egyptians was a symbol of their power over other people. And so for Moses to be able to transform his staff into a snake and then to grab the snake and take control over it would have been an incredibly powerful message to the Egyptians saying, you think you hold the reins of power and authority, but it is actually the God of these Israelites that holds this power. Another thing we know is that leprosy was the most feared disease in ancient times because of the devastating effect that it had on those who suffered from it. There was no cure for it, and it slowly destroyed the human body. And so to be able to cure this most feared disease of all diseases in a single instant was God's demonstration, nothing is impossible for me. Even this leprosy 
that you fear is nothing to me. Then the last thing we can say is that the Nile River was the very lifeblood of Egypt. Without the Nile, there is no Egypt. And so to be able to turn the precious waters of the Nile into undrinkable blood was an incredibly powerful symbol to the Egyptians to say from the lips of God, I can do whatever I want to do with you. Well, at this point, I think it's very clear, what more could anyone possibly need from God? Well, apparently Moses needed more. So he has one final objection. In verse 10, Moses says to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Moses' final objection was to say that he wasn't a fit spokesperson because literally the word is, I am heavy of tongue, slow of speech and tongue. Now, a lot of people read this and think Moses must have had some kind of a speech impediment, like a stutter or something like that. Uh, But there's a problem with this interpretation because the apostle Stephen in the book of Acts In Acts chapter 7, verse 22, says this about Moses. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. He says he was actually a powerful orator. So it seems to be contradicting what Moses himself is saying in Exodus chapter 4. Well, there's another place where this term heavy of tongue occurs. It occurs in the book of Ezekiel. And when it occurs in the book of Ezekiel, what it's referring to is the difficulty of speaking a foreign language. And so what some scholars think Moses is actually saying is is this. I've lived for 40 years in this Midian desert. It's been 40 years since I spoke my native tongues of Hebrew and Egyptian says, how can I now, a foreigner to this land, return back and with any eloquence speak in Pharaoh's courts? says, I don't think I can pull that off. It's not my language anymore. I'm a foreigner. It's interesting that God says in reply to that, in Exodus 4, 11 to 12, the Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. In essence, God says again, don't worry about it, Moses. I will be there to help you. You don't have to worry about what you're going to say because I'm going to give you the words to say in the right moment. Do you see the pattern that is developing over the course of this conversation between Moses and God? Moses tells God, I am a nobody. I can't do it. Find somebody else. And God says, don't worry. I will be with you. Then Moses says, yeah, but who are you? To which God replies, I am the God who is present with you, who will be with you. Then Moses says, what if they don't believe me? And the message you told me to tell them. And God says, I will demonstrate my presence with you through these signs and wonders that I will do through you. 
And then Moses says, I am not eloquent. I don't know how to speak well. To which God replies, I will be with you and help you to speak. In other words, every one of God's replies to Moses' sense of inadequacy was the same. I will be with you. 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 The message to Moses was singular. As long as I am with you, everything is going to be okay. All of those circumstances will work themselves out. Don't focus on your inadequacy. Don't focus on Pharaoh and the might of the Egyptian kingdom. Just know that I have promised my presence with you. And that's enough, Moses. That will be enough for you. Well, thank God Moses finally got the message, right? Well, not exactly. <laughs> God has been so gentle and patient with this guy. One excuse after another. So Moses has run out of excuses. He has nothing left to say. God has answered everything. Until finally in verse 13, Moses says, Oh Lord, please don't send someone else to do it. He's saying, I'm out of excuses. I've got nothing left to throw at you. But it doesn't matter because I'm still not going. <laughs> Find someone else. It's not going to be me. Do you notice something that the Lord here is not in all caps? He says, what am I supposed to call you? And God says, call me Yahweh, the God who is present. But when he addresses the Lord, he doesn't call him Yahweh. He calls him the lesser name Adonai. I think it's sending a message there saying, it's not going to be me, God. I don't want to be used in this way. To which God replies in verse 14, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. This is the first time in the entire conversation that God loses his patience with Moses. And becomes angry. You see, God is more than willing to work with our weaknesses. He understands our frailty. But God will not tolerate this disobedience that comes from a faithlessness. What he's saying is this. <clears throat> it's okay, Moses, if you're struggling with an image problem about yourself. How you view yourself, it's okay. Because the truth is you're not all that much. But how you think of me makes all the difference. Because I have already promised you that I will be with you. And yet, you are doubting me. You are doubting my word. You are doubting not only your inadequacy, but my inadequacy. Philip Ryken says, this fifth and final objection exposed what was underneath all of Moses' excuses. A fundamental unwillingness to obey. The real issue was not that he lacked the stature to persuade Pharaoh or that he was ignorant of God's name or that the Israelites would not believe him or that he was a poor public speaker. God had answered all of those objections. The real issue was that Moses refused to trust and obey. 
What's amazing to me is that even in God's anger, he shows understanding and compassion to Moses. If we look at verse 14, it says, Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he smote him with fire. No, it doesn't say that. Then it says, in reply, he says, What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. This is the incredible compassion of God. You can see God going, oh, this guy, you know? But he says, okay, Moses, all right, Mo. I'll give you, I'll give you your brother Aaron. And if you really don't want to speak, I'll give you your brother to speak on your behalf. And he can speak to Pharaoh. Many people think of this God of the Old Testament as a God of anger, quick-tempered. But we see in stories like this how absolutely patient and understanding and loving God is. In Exodus 34, verse 6, it says, And he passed in front of Moses, speaking of God, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness. Moses would eventually go on and obey God and be used by him to set his people free. <clears throat> and in this journey of leading the Israelites into freedom out of slavery, Moses would learn the lesson that God was trying to teach him that day at the bush. He learned that God's presence was more important than any of the other secondary circumstances that he and the people of Israel would face. Freed from slavery and journeying now into the promised land, the Israelites found themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai just as God told them would happen. And there they were worshiping God. And there God met with Moses, right where Moses saw the burning bush. But it is also at the foot of that Mount Sinai that the Israelites would sin greatly against God by making a golden calf out of the jewelry that God had given them. They took all of the jewelry that God provided and melted it down and Aaron made an idol of gold. And they worshipped this idol and they said, this is the God that delivered us out of Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 33 verse 1 to 4, this is the encounter that God has with Moses. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. Because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. God said, go to the land, go. I'm going to give you the land, as I promised. But he says, but I'm not going to go with you anymore. My presence will not be with you. It's the first time God says this to his people. 
Every other message up to now has been, I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. Now finally God says, go take the land, but it's not going to be with me. To which Moses replies in Exodus chapter 33, verse 12 to 17. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. See, Moses had learned the lesson of the burning bush. And he says, if you will not go with us to this land of milk and honey, then don't even send us. We're not even going to leave this place because it's pointless. If we go to this land and you are not with us, we will not go because your presence means everything. Without you, we are nobodies. Without you, we are no different than all the other pagan nations around us that worship false gods. Unless your presence is with us, we have no future. This is the lesson that Moses learned in this journey of leading God's people to the promised land. Thousands of years later, a carpenter would arise from the small town of Nazareth And he began to make some claims that were unthinkable of any normal person to make. And in John chapter 8, it records this interesting dialogue between him and the religious leaders. And they're listening to what he's saying. And they're starting to realize that this guy is not talking just like a rabbi. But he's talking like somebody else. And in John chapter 8, verse 54 to 58, it says, Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. And if I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him. And you have seen Abraham? And this is what Jesus says. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. (laughs) He didn't say I was. He said, I am. That's that same word, Yahweh. He was pointing back to the burning bush. And said that same person that revealed himself to your forefather Moses on Mount Sinai stands before you this day. I am. 
All of the promises of God's presence with us were met in the person of Jesus Christ. The name of our church is Emmanuel Community Church. That word Emmanuel means God with us. Next year as a church, we're going to be celebrating our 10-year anniversary. And as I was thinking about this move to Wheeling, this last few weeks I've been reflecting a lot about the history of our church. We've changed locations three times, from Elk Grove Village to Schaumburg, and here we are now in Wheeling. We've had a change in lead pastors. We've gained three elders, and we've lost two of them. We've left our denomination and started our own network. We've planted a church among Native Americans in Flagstaff, Arizona. And we partnered with the house church movement in Chicago. And I keep thinking, what a crazy ride this has been, you know? And I think about these things we've gone through the last nine years. And I think about every one of those decisions that I just rattled off was an incredibly difficult one. I feel like each one of them took a couple years out of my life. And now here we are in Wheeling. And as the lead pastor of this church, I've been reflecting a lot, what does this signify? What does this mean for us as a church to move here? What is our future? I was even thinking, what are our goals? To have a building? To grow a certain size? I don't know. There's so many ways we could try to measure progress as a church. I was uh, on Thursday this last week, was just driving through this neighborhood in Wheeling driving through the apartment complexes and other subdivisions and looking at kids playing in the playground. And uh, as I was driving through these neighborhoods here in Wheeling, I was just praying to God, you know, what is it that you want of us, God? What is it that we're supposed to do? You see, I don't know what the answer to that question is. I'm not really sure yet. But as I look at this story in Exodus chapter 3 and 4. This has become my prayer for our congregation. Show us your presence. What is it that you want of us, Lord? Because we can make all kinds of wonderful plans. We can build a tower of Babel and reach the heavens and say, let's make the name of ICC great. But I think what God is asking us to do is to enter into a season of prayer as a church and say, what is on your heart, God, for us? What is it that you want of us as a church? Great, we have a more comfortable sanctuary to worship. But the question is, what is your mission for us? How can we be a light, a city on a hill, that declares the presence of God among his people. And that 
is my invitation to us as a church in these coming months. We are largely an elder-governed church. I acknowledge that. But I think the future of our church is not going to be because three men sit around a table and decide the future of this congregation. I think it's going to come when all of us get on our knees and come before God and seek his face and say, what is it you have for us in this season of our community? Let's pray. I have to be honest with you that there is a certain uh, gut-level appeal to having such a wonderful sanctuary to worship in like this. Um, And it's so wonderful. Uh, I just was looking at a lot of the old photo archives of ICC, and it's just, it's been pretty amazing to me that anyone stayed at our church after they saw where their children were being kept, you know, in these hallways with no air conditioning in the summer and uh, no heat in the winter. When the weather gets sub-zero, our children wear their coats as they're shivering (laughs) while the adults are comfortable in the gym (laughs) with heating and air conditioning. Um, And I was looking at these pictures of kids in their coats and stuff like that and thinking like, wow, you know. And it's so nice. Now all the kids are their classrooms and there's this wonderful place to go. And we are so thankful to God for that. It is cause for celebration. It is cause to give great thanks and even appreciation to our host church, NPC. It's a wonderful thing. And yet at the same time, I think this move to wheeling signifies something deeper, more important. But I want to be the first to admit I don't know what that really is for us. What I desire for us as a church is to be able to affirm, regardless of where the physical space is that we have to worship, where our geographic location is, what our numbers climb to be, how sophisticated a children's program we're running. My hope is that we would learn the lesson of the burning bush and that our passion and our hunger as a community would be singular. Show us your glory. Make your dwelling among us. If you are not here in our worship, then what's the point of all this? Raising hands and getting all excited about nothing if you do not inhabit our praise, God. If you are not pleased with the worship that comes out of ICC, then what's the point of any of this? What's great about numerical growth? If you don't look down on us and smile, if you tell us, I don't know what ICC is anymore, you guys just go and do your business because I guess you guys are having a good time, but I'm not there, then I say it's pointless. It's meaningless. The cry of ICC every day has to be, less. your presence is with us. We will not move. We will not go. So show us your glory. Show us that you are in our midst. Otherwise, what distinguishes us from any other group of people acting religious? Unless you are in our midst. So I just want to invite you to offer that prayer to the Lord that Moses prayed thousands of years ago. 
Be with your people, Lord. Be among us and show us what is on your heart for us. Like the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, where you move, God, we will move. Where you desire us to be, we will go. Let's just offer that as a prayer to the Lord as our worship team comes to close us in a time of response.